0: So, man, we are so um, glad to have you here this morning. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, We are so grateful to have you. Um, Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 23 in our ongoing study through the book of Genesis. Um, We're going to be in 23 through 2518. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and um, turn there and open that up. Um, And so last week, if you were here, we're we're wrapping up um, the first big patriarch um, of Genesis, um, and that is Abraham. And so last week we looked at how God was faithful to keep his promise, promises to Abraham despite his, his uh, habitual habit to tell half-truths, um, despite um, his and Sarah's inability to birth a child. We saw the, the promised seed of Isaac come. Um, we saw him keep his covenant promises despite um, his and Sarah's initiative to take in the, prom- the covenant promise and blessing into their own hands um, and producing Hagar. I mean, not Hagar, producing Ishmael through Hagar and the cluster that that is. Um, we saw him keeping his covenant promises despite um, pagan relationships with his king Abimelech. And then we saw him keep his covenant promises in this final huge test for Abraham and asking him to sacrifice the promised seed of Isaac. And so, with that said, now that you kind of know where we've been, um, ministers have to do two things, um, a lot of these two things, um, just being a pastor. Um, And those two things are weddings and funerals. Um, Actually, in the past couple of weeks, I've been a part of both a funeral, and last night I did a wedding. And so it's just the very part of the fabric of what it is to be a minister. You just do a lot of these things. And one of the, th- the common themes that you see in wedding, both weddings and funerals, though they are on opposite ends of the celebratory spectrum in a way, um, is you see God's covenant faithfulness, especially for the believer. You see God's covenant faithfulness who has passed away and preserving them and, and using them and, and for His glory and a life well lived. And you also see the covenant faithfulness of the Lord in bringing two together to make them one. And so, I don't think it's by mere coincidence that the text I was signed today and God's providential grace brings us both a wedding and a funeral. And so, we're going to see both t- funerals and weddings today in the text. And so... The way I'm going to do this, because there's some, I think there's around 100 verses <laughs> to cover this morning. Um, and so the way we're going to do this, we're going to kind of do like last week. We're just going to follow these themes that I think we can see in this text. And I hope that you can walk away with some practical um, practical tools that we see in this narrative. And so I want to chase this theme of God's covenant faithfulness. And we've seen it time and time again with Abraham. And you're going to see it through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the rest of the crew. And so, in light of God's covenant faithfulness, this is where we're going to chase today. Um, The first thing I think we can see in chapter 23, i need to turn there, um, is the reality of what's to come should inform our rhythms of the here and now. Look with me in chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. And Sarah lived 127 years. And these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at this place that is Hebron, um, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And so by the time we reach Sarah's death in this text... She and Abraham have been married now for some 100 years. Isn't that crazy? Over 100 years they've been married. Here's what's even crazier. 62 of those years is her being with Abraham sojourning in this land that the Lord said He was going to give to him. It was her stepping out in faith with her husband to journey with him into this place that they didn't even know where they were going. And so... I think there's a lot that we could say about God's covenant faithfulness, but I don't want us to miss the reality of this marriage covenant either. Like, think about this covenant faithfulness, not just in the way the Lord has treated Abraham and Sarah, but in the way Sarah has followed Abraham. For over a hundred years, 62 of those wandering around in this place, living in tents away from family. This is fascinating. And so, here in the heart heart of the promised land, at 127 years old, she breathed her last, leaving behind her husband, and now Isaac's around 30-ish years old. And so, can you imagine the pain that Abraham and Isaac are feeling in this moment? Can you just imagine? Sarah has been there literally for every mountaintop and deep, dark valley that Abraham has walked through. She's been there for it, man. Just remember the mountaintops of the covenant promises, the defeat of the kings in rescuing Lot that we saw, and Abraham's victorious return when he was blessed by this king Melchizedek, whoever that guy was. Um, The giving of the covenant sign of circumcision, them being renamed. Remember, Sarah wasn't her original name. It was like Sarai, and she was renamed to Sarah, and Abram to Abraham. And they were given the covenant signs. And they were given the promised son of Isaac. So she's been there for all these monumental, huge, mountaintop moments. But also, she's been there for the dark valleys too. Very much so. Because she was involved, if you remember back, she was involved in the deep, dark valleys. She was there when Abraham gave her away and lied about her being his full sister so that She wouldn't be, so that he wouldn't be killed. And so she's taken into two different pagans' harems. She was there for that. She was there for the conspiring with Abraham and Hagar to produce Ishmael and the cluster that that brought about. She was there for her own personal failure when she laughed when God said, Hey, I'm going to give your 90 year old body a baby. She was there for that. Don't miss that. But through all of it, and this is what I want you to see. Through all of it, God preserved her and used her greatly as a matriarch of this covenant promise. And so she was a helpmate and to God's covenant bearer, Abraham, and so much so that we find Sarah mentioned again. You know where we find her mentioned again? In Hebrews chapter 11. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, that's the infamous, what? The, the, hall, of, is it, what is the, the hall of faith. Yeah, that's what they call it. So she's mentioned there again. And so we see her mentioned there as a matriarch of faith, an example for us to follow. But not only that, in Isaiah chapter 51, we see Isaiah talking to his Israelite kinsmen. Looking back in Isaiah 51, he tells his Jewish countrymen to look back at the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug from. Look back to Abraham and to Sarah who bore you. Hey, yeah, look at Abraham, but don't forget the matriarch of Sarah. Grace upon grace. And she was a testament to the cry that Abraham led on on Mount Moriah. This, on this mountain the Lord will provide in seasons of blessing and in sorrow. He provided in His provision and faithfulness. And Sarah was a fruit of that, man. She was fruit of that faithfulness. And so, with Sarah's death came this, this reality for Abraham... That this land promise had not come to pass yet, right? Remember, he was promised that he was gonna be given this land for his descendants and they were gonna dwell there, but but this hasn't happened. It's still inhabited by all these pagans. It's full and I look out and all I can see is pagans everywhere. That's what's going on here in in this text and so in this in this land promise in this passage seems to echo off the inner recesses of Abraham's mind and in his heart and he cries out i'm a sojourner i'm still a foreigner here i don't have anywhere to bury my own wife this land's supposed to be mine and it seems and it seems so that it's going to be the same with Abraham. He's aging. He hasn't received it yet. The pagans are still there. And so it seems like it's not going to come to him either. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it goes on to tell us that Sarah was the first among many generations that would die in the land without receiving the promise. And so, in this moment, what does Abraham do? He's been told, hey, Abraham, you're going to receive this land. Your descendants are going to dwell in this land. His wife is dead. He's getting old. He's like, what does he do? Does he question God? Like, what are you doing, God? Does he get mad at him? Does he become bitter? Does he become angry? Does he question? Does he walk away from God? No. He digs in even deeper to the covenant promises. And that's what, I don't want you to miss that. This is a huge deal. He digs in even deeper. He remembers the covenant promise. He believed them even more. He believed chapter uh, 12, verse 7. To your offspring, I will give this land. He dug in deeper to chapter 13, verse 15. All the land, all that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. He dug into chapter uh, 13, verse 17. Arise, Abraham, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Chapter 15. To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates, chapter 17. And Abraham, I will give it to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. There was no doubt in Abraham's mind that the land wouldn't go to his descendants. There wasn't a single doubt in his mind. So you know what he did? He put a down payment on that covenant promise and bought a piece of that land. He put a down payment on that covenant blessing, man. Do you see the faith that is welled up in him, especially from where he's been? Keep in mind this was a pagan star worshiper when we started with him. He was brought out of Ur. He gave his wife away twice, not just once, but twice. Out of a lack of faith. He slept with another woman because he didn't believe that God was going to give him the promised son. Time and time again, this this lack of faith. But do you see what he's doing now? Lord, I'm not even, I don't, I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I know you're gonna do it, so therefore I'm gonna buy a piece of this land. So then, when my descendants do get here one day, my wife's bones and my bones will be here. Don't miss that. That's a huge deal. And so, talk about growing in faith. So the reality of what was to come shaped Abraham in the here and now. I don't want you to miss that. It led to the fruit of his faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham now lived in light of a reality that was far better than his present situation. He was mourning his wife of a hundred plus years has passed away. I'm sure he's just like distraught, but he's so convinced of God's covenant blessings and His covenant promises that He puts a payment in on this burial site. He knew that this world is not our home. He knew that we're just passing through and that this reality is true for us in 2022, church. We see Paul talk about it in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because that is true, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.19, he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, and you are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. How does, what does this look like practically? During World War II, there was this guy by the name, it was a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've ever heard of him fascinating. His book uh, called Cost of Discipleship, it's worth the, the $12 you spend on Amazon. You need to go buy it when you leave this room. You can buy it now, for all I care. But anyways, so Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor-theologian um, during the time of Nazism, during World War II. And he, he greatly opposed Nazism, so much so that he was arrested and put into um, a concentration camp in Flossenburg. Um, I think that's in Germany. So. And just two weeks before um, Americans got there to liberate it, they hung him. He was a martyr. But it's recorded that before the Nazis hung him, he let out with his final breath. his final breath. This is his last recorded words. This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. The reality of what's to come informed his decisions in the here and now. Bonhoeffer understood that we're citizens of a better land that was to come. And this changes everything for us. It changes for the believer how we deal with death, how we deal with pain, how we deal with suffering when it comes knocking, because it will. Yes, we grieve. I hope you don't hear me say, if you're a believer, you shouldn't grieve. That's total garbage. Don't believe that. Yes, we grieve. To be human is to grieve in suffering. But... What well, as Paul tells us in First Thessalonians 4:13? We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve differently. The reality of what's to come informs us in the here and now. And so this changes how we mour- it mourn it, changes how we celebrate. Christians, we should throw the best parties, like, you should throw the best parties. Because Revelation 21 and 22 tells me that there's a far better party that is to come. We'll be filled with new wine in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You should throw the best parties in celebration of what is to come. Every opportunity is a gospel opportunity. From, from engaging with our neighbors in our backyards and our barbecues and, and grilling out and sitting around fire pits, the reality of what's to come changes what we value and what we give our time to and how we operate within those things. Every opportunity is for you to boast in the gospel of Christ, to, to, to boast in who He is and what He's done for you and what He can do for others. The reality of what's to come informs what we do in the here and now. And so, Abraham goes back and forth in, the, in this uh, story with this guy named Ephron. And he's trying to buy this land, and Ephron's trying to play. He, like, it kind of looks as if like he's being kind, but really, I think Ephron's being kind of a hustler with him. He's like, no, I'm not going to sell it to you. And then, like, he throws in the field instead of just this cave. And then he's like, well, this is really worth 400 shekels of silver. You know, he's trying to make some money here. And so, look with me in verse uh, 15 if you have your Bible. It says, uh, my Lord, Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land um, worth 400 shekels of silver, what is it between you and me? Just bury your dead. And so 400 shekels of silver, you need to know that a shekel is not a coin. A, a shekel is a weight. Coins wouldn't come around until many, many centuries later. It's not, coins aren't even a thing yet. And so 400 shekels of silver would have been around six and a quarter pounds. That might not sound like too much to you, but in our given our current day, what that would be equivalent to is $128,000. $128,000 for a burial site. So do you feel the weight of what Abraham is doing in this moment? So confident in his Lord, but he knew that no money could com- compare to his God who owns the, thaddle, th- uh, the cattle of a thousand hills, as the psalmist tells us. And he was going to give this land to his descendants. And so Abraham buries his bride in this cave of this field of Machpelah in Hebron. And that's about 20 miles south for you people who nerd out over this stuff like I do. That's about 20 miles south of modern-day Jerusalem. And it's said by tradition that this um, burial site is underneath currently a modern-day Muslim mosque called the, uh, the Mosque of Abraham, I think is what it's called. Yeah, a Muslim shrine there. And so anyways, Abraham's faith in burying his dead in this land out of confidence of the Lord to give them this land to his descendants had generational ripple effects. Don't miss this. The fact that, that he took the Lord's promise for what it was and he purchased this land out of faith has generational ripple effects for his kids and his grandkids and his great grandkids. Where do I get this from? Abraham buried Sarah here in Hebron in chapter twenty-three verses nineteen and twenty. Isaac buries Abraham here with Sarah in chapters twenty-five, verse nine. Jacob buries his dad, Isaac, here in Genesis forty-nine, thirty-one. Jacob's sons will bury him here in Genesis chapter fifty. Joseph made his sons of Israel swear to bury him here in Genesis chapter 50 verse 25. 430 years later, Moses would go and get Joseph's bones out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 13 verse 19 and carry his bones around in a satchel as he and the, the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness after the Exodus. And then for 40 years of wanderings and then when Joshua conquered the promised land he takes Joseph's bones that Moses carried into the land Joshua 24:32 generational ripple effects And this is the very essence of what Psalm 145 verse 4 says. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. And so from generation to generation to generation, because of what Abraham did, what the Lord did through him, his kids were like, remember back to what the Lord did through Abraham. Remember back to the covenant promises. Remember back to the covenant promises. Do you see that? And so... Buying this burial plot, Abraham's confidence in God's covenant faithfulness led him to be a generational example to a multitude of nations, like God said in his covenant promise. And God blessed him through it. It's just grace, man. And so we can see in chapter 23 that the promise of what's to come should infiltrate what we do in the here and now, which leads into point two, chapter 24. In light of God's covenant faithfulness, providential mundane moments are just as monumental for us as the mountaintop ones. Fun fact, so um, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the verse of Genesis with 67 verses. So um, look with me in the first uh, six verses of it. Isaac and Rebekah is where Isaac gets married. And so now Abraham was old, well in advance in years, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Don't miss that, that's good. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. And so with Sarah's death, it was also an eye-opener for aging Abraham that his son, his unmarried son of the covenant promise, remember the covenant promise fell on who now? On Isaac. When, when Abraham passes, the, the seed is Isaac now and it will be passed from him to Jacob and go on and so forth to Jesus. And so, well, Isaac's not married. And so he feels the weight of this. I have to, I have to get, make sure my son finds a, a good wife and I have to marry him off so that they'll produce heirs. And so Abraham gets his servant and, and has him go out on this quest to find Isaac's bride from among his kindred. Don't miss that. It's a little funny. Um, he sent his servant, to go find Isaac, a bride, at a family reunion, essentially. I feel like there's like a really bad, uh, who's it, Jeff Foxworthy joke in there somewhere, but we're, we won't go there this morning. So, but <laughs> anyways, we got some kissing cousins going on up in here. Um, so this was such a huge deal to Abraham that he made the servant take an oath with him by putting his hand under his thigh. And so to us in we're, 2022, we're like, this is kind of weird. Like, why, are, why is this dude putting his hand under this old guy's thigh and promise, making a promise to him? That seems a little strange. Um, what's weird to us has huge implications in this culture. So this, this was probably a reference to circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant, you know, that was given to all males of Israel, this linkage to the promised seed of Isaac that's to come and that has already come. And so this elf... This oath, elf, well, I don't know what that is. This oath appeared appealed to the power and presence of the Lord God who made this covenant. And so Abraham, for Abraham, this fulfillment of this promise was a really big deal. This was life or death to Abraham. Like, this has to happen. You have to promise me and you have to come through on this. And so he made sure that, and, keep, and check this too, he made sure that he would promise him that he wouldn't pick out a wife from among the Canaanite people that indwelt the land. Remember back to Noah. This is that curse that's already playing out in in Genesis chapter 9. Cursed be you, Canaan. I don't know if y'all remember that, if y'all were here for that week. Um, but but he, he cursed this land. And that proclamation is being lived out in real time in Abraham's day by this pagan depravity and this, and this curse. It's cursed him for generations. And Abraham didn't want his offspring to be associated with these people and he didn't want Isaac to go with his servant because Isaac's very presence in the land was a proclamation to these pagans that the land's going to belong to me and my people one day. And so... However, Abraham believed that God's providential hand would provide him a bride. And what I want you to see in this text and what we're going to see is this providential grace isn't going to be played out through the skies being split or a a bush being consumed by fire and God speaking to the the servant, hey, this is the one, pick this one. It's not going to be played out by the splitting of a sea. It's going to be played out by ordinary, normal, mundane means of life through delays, through customs, through stresses, through these chance meetings. And so, in in verse 10 of chapter 24... um, Abraham's servant took ten of Abraham's camels with all sorts of gifts from his master to go out and to find this wife in Mesopotamia near the city of Nahor. And so this would be around a thousand-mile journey for this servant to go on. It would take several months to complete. And so we see this servant pray for God's providential grace. And this is where I want to tie this in. Will you look at me in verses 11 through 14. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well. This is the servant. By the well of water at the time of evening. And the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, he prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, oh, is that right? Yep. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the man of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your, your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Notice what he didn't pray for. He didn't pray for God to split the skies. He didn't pray for God to consume a bush and to tell him which one it was. He simply prayed, Lord, will this woman, woman that you send offer me a drink to, of water when I ask, and will she water my camels? Ordinary, mundane means in this period. Ordinary things. In this culture, and he's asking for guidance through these ordinary means. And so, catch what verse 15 says. This is fascinating. So, he's praying, he's asking for God's providential grace through these ordinary things, like just giving me a drink of water and watering my camels. And in verse 15, the first little phrase, before he had finished speaking, before he'd even finished praying, here comes Rebecca bebopping down the the thing with her watering jar. The brother isn't even done praying in God's providential hands at work. And here comes Rebecca, who the text tells us was born to Bethuliel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So, if I'm the servant and I got my checklist. So she says that she's of Abraham's kindred of abraham 's people, check one. she was the granddaughter of abraham 's brothers uh, of abraham 's brother Nahor, which would make her cousins with Isaac again, a little weird, but it 's what Abraham requested, so check one. Um, verse sixteen tells us that she was attractive and that she was a virgin, so she hasn 't been married, so check two and then in verses seventeen through twenty she offers the servant a drink and starts watering his camels. And so for you to kind of understand the weight of this text and just the, how this is just mind-blowing, you need to understand what it meant to water ten camels in this day. And so when she volunteered to water the servant's camels, it was quite a task. An ancient well was a large, deep hole in the earth that would have had steps leading down to this spring of water. And so a typical camel would drink around 25 gallons of water. And the typical water uh, canister that they would carry would hold about three gallons of water in this day. And so with that said, if you do the math, Rebecca would have made somewhere between 80 to 100 trips. Let me say that again. 80 to 100 trips down into this well to retrieve water, to water this brother's camels. This would have taken hours in the Middle East where it's flipping hot all the time. Sweaty hours. And so we see this hours of servanthood done out of her heart. Check three. And then in verse 21, I love this. The servant, after all these things happened, The man gazed at her in silence. That's what God's grace does to the believer. This providential grace just causes us to just sit there like, what in the world? This is crazy, man. I I used the example of Piper last week, but I mean, when we found out that that we were pregnant with her, like it was just one of those moments, like after walking through this for years, it's just like, what? 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 Are you kidding me? And so God's providential grace in the mundane, when the camels quit drinking, the text says the servant put a ring on that girl. And I'm not talking about a wedding ring. I'm talking about a gold nose ring. So he would have put a gold, this gold nose ring on this girl and, and put these bracelets on her and gave her lavish her with all these gifts and he asked her to take her to her father's house so that he could ask her to take her to be with Isaac. And so What does this mean for us in 2022? I think J.I. Packer can sum this up really well for us. J.I. Packer says this. He says, Believers are never in the grips of blind forces. The blind forces of fortune or chance or luck or fate. All that happens to us is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. There are no chance moments, believer. Let me say that again. There are no such things as chance moments. It's not. Every moment is holy. Every conversation you have, every meal you have around your table, every fire pit you hang out with friends, every crawfish bowl with Clear Creek Community Group— Every playing with your, every time you play with your kids, every walk on the beach is providential and should be done to the glory of God and the good of your enjoyment. And God arranges our lives to align with His divine providence, and that's good news, Church. It's not like we do stuff and He's like, "Oh no, I got to figure this out now. I got to rewire their past to work out with what I want it to do." That's not how it works. He's not making up as it goes. Our days were orchestrated before we were even an embryo in our mother's womb. And that makes every moment a miracle because it has God's fingerprints all over it. Every moment. And by now, with all that I've said, I hope you're feeling the tension. I hope you're feeling this tension in your mind. I hope you're feeling this tension in, but I thought He just said that my mundane moments matter. But also... I thought he just said that God orchestrates all of our lives. So how could, our, how could the mundane moments matter if he's orchestrating it? Like, how does that even work? I hope, do you feel that tension? I hope you feel that tension. I want you to feel that tension. This is called the doctrine of divine concurrence. And so the doctrine of divine concurrence simply means that God and man are both acting and working at the same time or concurrently. I, th- I love the way Spur- Spurgeon describes it, and I think he will be helpful in helping you understand So just as the rails of a train track, if you look down the corridor, if you ever stood on train tracks, and you stare down as as far as your eyes can see, and it almost looks as if they're running parallel, but it almost looks as if they merge together off in the distance. Spurgeon says this is what divine concurrence is. These these train tracks which run parallel to each other and appear to merge in the distance, so the doctrines of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seem separate from each other in this life, will one day merge together in eternity. And our task in the here and now is not to force their merging, but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly. And so... With all that said, yes, God is both completely and fully sovereign. I hope you hear me say that. He is completely and fully sovereign. But also, yes, you have very real decisions to make with very real consequences. Your mundane really does matter. The the if-then statements of Scripture are just true. Moses in Deuteronomy 28, he's talking to the Israelites. If you diligently obey the Lord your God and obey His commandments, then the Lord your God will put you high above the nations of the earth. Jesus in John fifteen verse seven, in one of the most uh, ver- the, one of the most ver- the verses that's taken the most out of context, I'm getting tongue tied. He says this in John fifteen: If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Jesus again. He says this in John. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, then he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The if-then statements are real. If you do this, God will do this. Your mundane moments, you have a responsibility. And so, all this to say, your mundane moments do matter. The way you coach baseball at Kentucky, it matters. If you're single in this room and you're on the dating app, It's okay. Do it. God works it all together, but He still lets you use the means to which you have to bring about His purposes. Get on the app if you're single. Um, I mean, man, there's a million different things I could say. How you spend your money at Walmart? It all matters. And simultaneously, in your mundane, as Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is above the heavens and He does all that He pleases. So, Do you feel the tension? He uses both. And so your mundane moments do matter. So believer, start finding your joy in the everyday mundane that God God gives you. The breath that fills your lungs. The coffee you enjoy in the mornings. The laughs you have with friends. The suffering you walk through when you lose a loved one. These moments for you, believers, should remind you that if you are regenerated and you are born again and you are a child of God, that you are a living, breathing, perpetual Miracle. You're a miracle. I hope you hear that. If you're a believer, you are a miracle. You know, a lot of times we ask God like, Lord, just let me see a miracle. Can I just see a miracle? It'd be so easy. It'd be so easy to tell my unbelieving friends about you if I could just have a miracle. If you are a believer, you are a living miracle that He's taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. And so this causes us to worship in all of life because all of life is worship. So God's faithfulness led this man to do just that. Look when being be in verse 26 and 27. After all this has come to pass... The man prays. He he bows his head and he worshipped the Lord. And he said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to my father's uh, to the way the house of my kin, my master's kinsmen. And so, this moment led him to worship and to cry out of this love, this steadfast love. And so, this the Hebrew word for this steadfast love is hesed. And so this hesed word, this, this hesed is Hebrew, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament used for God's covenant love for His people. And this word conveys a love that can't be broken. Why? Because it's rooted in God's covenant. And God's covenant can't be broken. And so it's rooted in that. And so the lo- this hesed love of God, it's constant. It can't be changed and it will not change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's unwavering. And and it's that way because it's based out of God's character. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if God is that, then His love is that because He can't change and it can't change with Him. And so this servant remembers all that the Lord has brought him through, brought this family through, and he cries out in this chesed love of God. I love that. And so they go back to Rebecca's father's house and then the servant meets, (laughs) first before he meets the dad, he meets this dude named Laban, and so Laban is Rebecca's um, sleazy opportunist brother that we're going to learn about um, here in a couple weeks. Um, Laban's going to be the guy who takes Isaac's son's Jacob's um, wife, Rachel. Um, and replaces her with lazy-eyed Leah. You know who I'm talking about? You know that story? He like wakes up and he's like, whoa, you're not my wife. Like, What's going on here? And so, yeah, that, this is the same guy. And so he's introduced to this Laban guy, and, and he finally meets Bethuel, the father. And, uh, and so he, they give the family riches. They run through the story. Um, and then the father and Laban in verse 50 say, this thing has truly come from the Lord. Rachel, you have to do this. I mean, Rebecca, you have to go through with this. And so, so he gave the family riches, and they try to keep her around for ten more days, but the servant is adamant on them leaving because he knows this promise is impending. i got to get her back. i got to get her back to Isaac. The, the covenant is dependent on this. And so they ask, they ask her, what does she want to do? They ask Rebecca what she wants to do. And in verse 58, I don't want you to miss this little phrase, I will go. Three, three simple words. I will go. And those three words mirror exactly what Abraham said when he left her. I will go. I will go. They, they, they did it. Don't miss that. Don't miss the trust in the God of Abraham. Uh, in Sarah's trust in the God of... Uh, not Sarah, Rebecca's trust in the God of Abraham. This woman willingly left the comfort of her father's house to go venture into a land that she doesn't know to a, bride, a groom that she hasn't seen yet. Casting herself on the Lord who would see her life through to completion. And in verses 64 through 67, we wrap up this love story. Look with me. It says, And Rebecca lifted up her eyes as they're rolling back into the the camp where Isaac is. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent, and Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so as they rolled back into the camp, Isaac didn't waste any time marrying this girl and consummating that marriage. No time was wasted here in the text. And so with that said, we see the new patriarch and matriarch established. The new story that will pick up on that will pick up next week um, with them too, and so it's easy to look at this love story and be like, "Man, that's such a beautiful love story that God used for Isaac and Rebecca, and bringing about the servant to go and get them and bring them together, and that's really good history, man." And it is; it's a great love story. A movie could be made about it, but I don't want you to miss the true and better love story that is in this text. Don't miss the gospel that's in this text. This picture, this passage is a beautiful picture of how Jesus is united to his bride, the church. Like Abraham, we have a heavenly father who desires a bride for his son. Like Rebecca, we were chosen for marriage before we ever knew it. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Like Rebecca and Isaac, we are destined to share in the glory of the Son. Jesus in His high priestly prayer, The glory You have given me to me, Father, I have given to them. Like Rebecca, we learn of the Son through His representative, namely the Holy Spirit. Like Rebecca, we are the bride that is divinely met, Chosen and called and lavished with gifts much more precious than silver and gold church, namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Like Rebecca is entrusted to the care of the servant until she meets the bridegroom, we receive the care of the Holy Spirit to guide us until we are united with our, with our bridegroom being Jesus. Like Rebecca, we must step out and leave all that we have with joy to be united with the Son. The true and better Son, Jesus, didn't send gifts of gold as a dowry for us, but rather He gave us Himself, His life, and His blood. And where Rebecca was united to her husband Isaac, Jesus' church, Jesus will one day come and be reunited with us, His bride. It's grace. Don't miss the gospel. There is a true and better love story at play in these covenant blessings. And so, with that said, this leads into our final point. In light of God's faithfulness, our limitations don't stop His covenant grace. And so, man, you can come on back up here. Abraham lived to be 175 years old, and he dies, and they bury him with his wife Sarah in the land purchased that would one day belong to his descendants. The baton is now going to be passed from Abraham to the promised son, Isaac, to carry out as he's the new patriarch um, with his new matriarch, Rebecca. And so if Abraham, church, shows us anything, this first patriarch, and what I hope you've seen week after week after week as we've looked at him, if he shows us anything, it's that God can take a pagan, birth faith within them, Use them despite their screw-ups and make himself great through them. Church, if you're a believer in this room, that's your story too. That's your story. You were at once a pagan non-believer. You were at once uh, had faith birthed within you by the initiative of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. God uses you despite your screw-ups. And he will one day make his name great through you. And so death couldn't even stop God's covenant blessings as it passed from Isaac and will find its ultimate amen in Jesus. And here's the deal, church. Like Abraham, we're not called to make our name great. Think back to Babel. We're not called to make our name great. But our name is made great in God's economy when, like Abraham, we live in light of and regularly boast in God's covenant faithfulness to us. Because that's where joy, that's where hope, and that's where biblical faith is ultimately found. And so, believer, man, believer, I hope that encourages you. I hope that encourages you. You can't mess it up, man. That should stir your heart for worship in the God who keeps covenant with you despite you, that hesed love, that covenant-keeping love. And unbeliever, man, you have a heavenly father who pursues you despite you, who wants you to run to His Son by the help of His representative, the Spirit. And so if that's you, repent of your sin today. Today could be the day of your salvation. Rest in the finished work of Jesus who came and stepped into our brokenness to live the life that we could not live and we would not live left unto ourselves, who died the bloody death, the bloody death, Uh, Cross, who, who, who suffered and endured that to die on our behalf and didn't stay dead, but rose again, defeating sin, defeating death in His resurrection three days later, and who now rules and reigns as the ascended King and Lord over all. Repent and rest in Him today. Today could be your day of salvation. Let me pray. And so, Heavenly Father, man, I hope if anything today, as we looked at weddings and funerals, is that your covenant grace goes on. It goes on despite us. But but even in that, even though it goes on despite us, when we're not here anymore, you're faithful to use us. You care about us. You care about our mundane moments. You care about what we do in the here and now. What a grace. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for myself and for every believer in this room that you will remind us of those things. When we fail, when we drop the ball because we do, would you remind us that you keep that Hesed covenant love for us because it's bound in your character and not ours. Lord, be glorified in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.